Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Will you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit, come, come and fill this place, fill each one of us to overflowing. And Lord, speak through me now that my words would be your words and your grace and your truth would be spoken, heard, and received deep in our hearts here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I attended something once upon a time called junior high school. It was pretty much like middle school in that it was basically middle school. It was a building where they collected and tried to educate all the 12 to 15 year olds in my town. Now, I want to say this, I love, really adore middle schoolers. I was a youth minister. I volunteered as a youth minister before I was a professional youth minister. I love middle schoolers, junior high schoolers even. I love them. That being said, I don't remember loving junior high school or junior high schoolers when I was in junior high school. I didn't like the other junior high schoolers around me. I certainly didn't like this junior high schooler walking around in his very uncomfortable skin. I think that was the time in life when I first really felt and struggled with the desires of the human heart and body. It's the first time I really encountered in myself and my peers the kind of selfish and sometimes destructive acts of the will that inevitably occur when insecurity and self-doubt creep in. And so I was thinking about junior high school and my years there and remembering three books that we read during those years at my school. I remember reading a separate piece by John Knowles, and a book called Death Watch by Rob White, and another book called Adrift by Stephen Callahan. Now, Adrift was a, a true story. It was a, an account by Stephen Callahan of his 76 days adrift in the Atlantic Ocean after his sailboat, he was trying to do a transatlantic uh, sailing trip, and his sailboat sank, and he was in his life raft surviving for 76 days. It is a desperate story of, of starvation and being, you know, trying to figure out how to not drink the ocean that was surrounding him, and it's an incredible story. And then there was a, a Death Watch. So Death Watch was a short little novel, and it was about uh, a young man. He was a college student. He was kind of desperate. He was uh, very poor, and he, and he was a hunting guide, and he, he decided to take a job as a hunting guide for a fellow to go bighorn sheep hunting in the desert. He didn't really quite like this guy that was trying to hire him. He thought he was a little fishy. Turns out he was a psychopath, and the young man becomes the hunted. It's a very harrowing novel in the desert, just crazy story. And then there was a separate piece, 
And a separate piece, if you haven't ever read it, is a story of two young prep school students who spent a summer together at their prep school. And one of them is this really outgoing, very confident athlete. And the other is this very shy, bookish, scholarly guy. And then as they're there together, they, they kind of develop a rivalry with one another. And sadly, this rivalry uh, eventually uh, ends in, ensues in, uh, one of the young men dying tragically. Now, what I've realized about all these books, and it's amazing to me that they've stuck with me so, like, I didn't even have to Google what those books were about. Like, I didn't have to Google who the authors were, but I didn't have to Google what they were about. They've stuck with me. And what I've realized about all of them is that as I was reading them in junior high school, they were, each of them, in their own way, a reflection of what I and all my friends were feeling and doing at the time. They all were tales that incorporated lots of very thirsty moments, sometimes literally and sometimes figuratively. They were all stories of survival and rivalry, kill or be killed. They were all rife with insecurity for the main characters. And isn't that what junior high school or middle school feels like? And I want to say that junior high was only three years of my life a very long time ago. But if I'm honest, even at age 50, and even though I should know better, I still feel and act like I'm in junior high school all too often. I can fall into the insecure traps and treat life as survival, kill or be killed. Focus on self at every turn, uh, constantly thirsting after self-satisfaction, self-gratification, things that even when they're consumed, don't quench. I think that junior high school was just a more unvarnished season of what happens in every season of life for every one of us. And our passage this morning from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is evidence that this has been so in every generation. When you read 1 Corinthians, it can read like a letter from a junior high principal to deal with his students' junior high drama. But here we are. Now, we're in this second Sunday of this season of Epiphany. And Sandy Kerner, in her sermon last week, reminded us that this word epiphany is about manifestation. It's revelation. She told us that the word means to show forth, to, to burst forth. Or she said to starburst. To shine forth God's light and God's love in this world as it is revealed in Jesus Christ. And so... We use this thing in our services. Maybe you've observed this. It's something called the lectionary. And the lectionary is just a set group of readings that are, are assigned. They are assigned by a, a, a group well beyond this church. And we use it all across the Anglican Communion. And it's a set set of readings for each Sunday in the liturgical year. And it's on a three-year cycle. And so we read different readings every Sunday along that cycle. And by the time we get through three years, we've read pretty much the whole Bible. And I must say that this passage from 1 Corinthians, which was assigned for this day, isn't the typical kind of lesson that we'd see in this season that we're in, the season of Epiphany. In fact, I look back to past years 
when I preached on this second Sunday of Epiphany, and I avoided this passage every single time. I wonder why. Do you remember what was just read? I know Tim Smith remembers what was just read. And he got uncomfortable as he read it, if I'm not mistaken. And we all got a little uncomfortable because we're all in it, and it's very uncomfortable. And who wants to talk about things that are uncomfortable, especially in something as exciting and, and bright and joyful as Epiphany? In Epiphany season, most of the readings have something to do with this idea of Christ being shown forth as Messiah, as Savior, as visible manifestation the light and love of God for the salvation and transformation of the world. So why does junior high school and a reading like the one we just heard from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 have to do with any of this epiphany business? Well, why don't we take a look? Let's open up. 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 6. We're looking at verses 9 to 20. It's on page 955 in the Pew Bibles if you need to use one of those or if you brought your own Bible, feel free to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 20. So why a passage that highlights the Corinthians' insecurities and unrighteous thirsts for the things that never quench in a season that's supposed to be about the epiphany of Jesus Christ? Well, I think it's because this passage illustrates the point of epiphany, of revelation, the showing forth of Jesus. Because in epiphany will always create a before and after situation. There is the perspective one has before the epiphany, and then there is the transformed perspective one has after the epiphany. And so, for example, in our, our gospel passage that we read about the, the calls of Philip and Nathaniel, uh, Jesus is revealed to them both in unique ways as the Messiah. And so you have the pre-epiphany Philip and Nathaniel, and then you have the post-epiphany Philip and Nathaniel. They now have transformed perspectives, not only on the person of Jesus, but on their whole reason for existence, for being, a, and their purpose in life, in light of this epiphany. We see that the epiphany of Jesus Christ changes not only their outlooks, but their whole identities. And of course, there's all kinds of different epiphanies that we have, discoveries that we have in life, but no epiphany changes one's identity like the epiphany of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, crucified to save us from our sin and raised from the dead to inaugurate the new creation and make those who put their trust in him inheritors of children in that new creation or as Paul calls it here in verse 9, in the kingdom of God. No epiphany transforms like that one. And what Paul is addressing here is that fact that his readers in this church that he founded upon the epiphany of Jesus, or you could say that the gospel of Jesus Christ, are losing sight of that epiphany and are tempted to slip back into their old perspective prior to the epiphany. You see? They aren't in junior high any longer, but though they should know better, on this side of the epiphany, they are once again living like they are in junior high. 
with all the insecurity and all the self-gratifying, unrighteous thirst of those going through life like it's a game of self-interested survival, kill or be killed. And may I say that actually it isn't the thirst that is the problem. Thirst isn't the problem. It's unrighteous thirst. It's thirsting for the wrong things, for the wrong reasons. I mean, just read our our psalm appointed for today, Psalm 63, and it's all about thirst and feasting and being satisfied, but it's righteous thirst. It's thirst for God. It's thirst for his kingdom and the quenching satisfaction that's poured out for the inheritors of his kingdom in the form of his steadfast loving kindness. His chesed is the Hebrew word. And you read this psalm, and at the beginning of it, it sounds like those parched scenes in a drift and death watch. As the psalmist writes, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh also longs after you in a barren and dry land where there is no water. You might say in a vast and endless ocean where all the water is only salt water. Then it goes in a very different direction than those unquenched thirsts in those books. And he writes this. He says, for your loving kindness, your steadfast love is better than life itself. My lips shall praise you. And those must be quenched lips, right? As long as I live, I will magnify you and lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. When my mouth praises you with joyful lips. And so righteous thirst is for the Lord himself and and his kingdom. And his quenching loving kindness is what he pours out. And what the gospel proclaims is that quenching loving kindness has been poured out by God the Father in the person of his Son the Savior, Jesus Christ. But Paul is writing to those who have or are sort of tending towards forgetting that, or to use his term in verse 2, they have been deceived away from their righteous thirst and are tempted back to unrighteous thirst, which is the kind of thirst they once had before they received the epiphany, the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does unrighteous thirst entail? Well, we said it's unquenchable. And if you look at the list of people with unrighteous thirst in verses 9 to 10, it's clear that unrighteous thirst is for the individual gratification of self over and against the building up of the community. Whether that be those sins that go after bodily thirsts, acts of sexual sin, Bear in mind, this is acts of sexual sin, not just orientation. Drunkenness. Or those that go after monetary thirst, thievery, greed, swindling, or as some translated, it's it's extortion, it's, it's ruthless business tactics. Or those that go after emotional thirst, idolatry. Reviling. Reviling is just another word for gossip or pushing others down to falsely elevate the self. These thirsts are for the self. 
And though there are plenty of ways that people seek to libate these selfish thirsts, it's like drinking salt water. You drink and you drink and only become more thirsty. Think of John D. Rockefeller and his greed. So this man was once the the richest person on earth. And a reporter asked him once, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And his answer was, just a little bit more. And all of these unrighteous thirsts betray a level of insecurity and fear and certainly an ignorance towards or forgetfulness of the steadfast loving kindness of the Lord that provides ultimate security and quenching of thirst, of satisfaction, and this foundation for healthy and upbuilding community. And Paul's point in listing these unrighteous thirsts isn't to be a a how-to in building up community of having the right thirst and avoiding the wrong thirst, but it's to remind them of the epiphany that they've already received and by the light of which they are transformed. They once were, he says, thirsty. For these things, and it is a very comprehensive List that touches every person, makes us all uncomfortable. And yeah, there are folks in the church and in other parts of society that have focused on one half of this list, the top part, all the sexual stuff. And there's some that really focus on the the latter part, all the financial stuff and all the justice stuff. But Paul's brought it all together in one place. But he's saying to you, now, listen, friends, you have been, your thirst is now for God, and he quenches your thirst. Jesus is your satisfaction. Notice that Paul uses the word inherit in verse 9. An inheritance is something that is received, not because of what you do or don't do, but because of who you are, or more specifically, whose you are. And an inheritance and an epiphany are very similar things. They're much the same. They are both received and not achieved. And heirs, or those who have seen and received the epiphany, are forever changed, and their perspective is changed. There is the before, and then there's the after. Their identity is changed. Indeed, their thirsts are changed. And what Paul states here in verses 12 and following is that those who have received that epiphany, the showing forth, the starburst of his loving kindness in his son Jesus Christ, they are inheritors. And as inheritors, they are united. It is a a, a oneness that is created. And he uses these images of marriage to illustrate this union. And it's an uncomfortable illustration. Let's face it. This talk of marriage and the the prostitute. But he's talking about this union and and he's juxtaposing this. He's he's pointing out the danger of unrighteous thirst, attempting to be quenched in unrighteous ways by describing it like a blasphemous marriage to a prostitute. He uses the example of sex apart from steadfast loving kindness. Tim Keller's great on this part. He talks about this image as marriage with only one aspect of the covenant present, just the physical bit, and that's it. None of the financial commitment to one another, none of the emotional, spiritual 
just the physical. And what that means is that one aspect is not being self-giving. It's other-taking. It's sex without any covenantal self-sacrifice. And that's why it's blasphemous and that's why it's dangerous. Why would one do that, though? One would do that if this life is only about survival, kill or be killed, and others are only viewed as rivals or as limited resources to exploit, to consume. But Paul is saying, don't forget the epiphany. Verse 14, God raised the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. Do you know now that your bodies are members of Christ? He's saying you're secure. You've inherited. The light and love of God has shone forth upon you. Verse 20, you are bought with a price. Jesus Christ has given himself as that price. He's given himself to you fully as a bridegroom to his bride. He has poured himself out upon the cross to quench your unrighteous thirst. Your righteous thirst, excuse me. Why on earth would you go back? Why on earth would anyone of us go back to pre-epiphany drinking of the selfish salt water? Verse 18, Paul says, flee from that poison, that unrighteous thirst. It will not satisfy. It is, in fact, deadly. It will kill you, and it will kill the community. You're not those people any longer. Junior high is over. And so, we're in the season of epiphany, friends. The light has shone upon us. We are secure. We've been bought with a price. We are his. We're children of our Father. We're in his fellowship. We are united with him. These are all things that come after the epiphany. Now let us live as those in light of that epiphany. Amen.